hey, good morning. Grab your Bibles and turn to the end. We are going to be in the last two chapters of the Bible. We are going to be in Revelation 21 and 22 this morning. Thank you guys for choosing to worship with us. We are um, finishing a two-part series that I started here a couple weeks ago. And uh, the series is called Beginnings and Endings. A couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, the book of Genesis, kind of the first three chapters, talking about some of the foundations of our faith that are established right in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Hopefully, some of you uh, remember us talking about that. And uh, the, the, the message that morning was that if we lose sight of our foundations, some of these primary things that we learn all the way back at the beginning of Genesis... Um, our faith is going to suffer. The gospel is going to get lost. And today I'm going to the other extreme. I'm saying if we lose track of some of the things that are taught to us in the last two chapters of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, which is describing what our hope is, our hope of heaven. If we lose the beginnings or if we lose the endings, I'm fearful that we could lose the gospel in the middle. So today is kind of fun. Several months ago, um, I spoke in this, I spoke here at Grand Haven. I didn't speak in Spring Lake, but I spoke in Grand Haven and taught a whole message on hell. Were any of you guys here for that? Okay, I had first-time visitors that week. And they were like, nice sermon, pastor. And I met them in the parking lot. I'm like, oh man, I'm so, I just feel so bad. Like I'm not normally a, a fire and brimstone kind of guy. Like you've got to at least come back. And I think they did. But uh, today's way easier. So if you're visiting, we're talking about heaven. It's all good news. Good news, right? So, so today we're going to be talking about heaven. Here's my challenge in talking about heaven. Heaven's a little bit undescribable. John, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, he sees the throne room. In chapter 5, he continues to describe this scene. He's been caught up and is witnessing heaven. And he keeps using these words like, and it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like this. It's very, very hard to describe. A few years ago, some of you know, we've planted two, two churches. This church has planted two churches in Kenya. One is in Lemuru, Kenya. It's about an hour outside of... Um, Nairobi, very, very easy to get to. The pastor there trained at Moody Bible Institute, so he spent some time in the States. We planted a church in Lemuru with James Amwamba, the other pastor. Can you put this picture up? Is a guy by the name of Andrew McKenzie, and he's in a remote area in a town called Busia along the Ugandan-Kenya border. Um, I've been there once. I think I'm the only person from our church that has been there. I went there with a pastor from Traverse City and Fort Wayne, I never want to go to Busia again. It's a wonderful church. He's a wonderful man. I, we want to support the ministry. We've built a building out there. We continue to support Andrew McKenzie. I'm just telling you, that is the edge of the earth, Busia, Kenya. But I had the privilege of bringing him to Chicago. And we brought him over here for some training. So if you could imagine what it's like to take a guy who lives in a remote area in Kenya and put him into downtown Chicago, I'm just telling you, that's fun. And um, uh, just some things that I did, I took him to the top of a building and we were kind of overlooking the city and you could just tell he had never seen anything like this in his life. So this picture is actually taken, Chicago's in the background, we're at the Shedd Aquarium. And uh, Mackenzie was kind of walking around this, he's, he, I don't think he's ever thought about what goes on underwater in the ocean. So I've, I've got him at the aquarium and, and he's... Um, well, he's kind of sporting a, a gold shirt that I don't think I could get away with wearing. Um, he had no problem with it. He looked good in it. He's kind of a, a smaller version of Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. He's just a tough guy. 
So, so we're walking around the Shedd Aquarium, and we get to this area where you're looking at kind of the coral reef that exists underwater. And I'm watching him look at it. And he goes, how am I going to describe this to my wife when I get back home? I, I have no words to describe this thing that I'm seeing, and I can't come up with a point of reference where she's going to understand the beauty of what I'm witnessing. As we were leaving Chicago, he said, if this is Chicago, what's heaven like? And I was like, wow. Um, I don't think most people, you know, get those confused, but from your, your perspective, I get it. So, so just understand my challenge this morning. I'm, I'm trying to describe something that's indescribable, but here's the problem. Heaven's our hope, right? Like, like you guys wouldn't go on a vacation to somewhere you've never been and at least not looked at a brochure, checked out the place you were staying like, like, you would put more planning, and sadly, some of us are putting more planning into a summer vacation where we're going to be for a week than, when we're, than where we're going to spend eternity. Because we don't know how to process the undescribable. The other problem with thinking about heaven is to get there, you got to die, right? So, so there's this country song, Kenny Chesney, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. Like, we get that part of it too, Right? So, so heaven is something that is given to the church, has our future hope, but there are reasons why we choose not to focus on it. And sadly, when we do that, we lose sight of our hope. So I'm just going to be basically a quick little tour guide going through a brochure of heaven, describing a couple things about heaven, hopefully to get you excited. Just four words, just four descriptors about what heaven is like. The big idea is simply this. Without knowing where you're going, it's hard to get there. Without knowing where you're going, it's hard to get there. First point, if you're keeping notes, is this. The destination is awesome. Let me give you the first word that I want to use to describe heaven. Well, actually, you're going to see it in the text. Look at Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So, so let me just pause right there. Are you seeing a word repeated over and over in those verses? What's the word that you see several times? I can stand here all day. Somebody shout it out. New. We see it three times in those two verses. New is how heaven is described. And then he goes on and gives this descriptor, has a bride adorned for her bridegroom. Now, I've been married 38 years, and Kristen and I were married when we were 18 years old. It was not a uh, fancy wedding by any means. But I can remember her dress. I can remember what she looked like that day. The last wedding I did was on Father's Day this past June. It was for a guy in our church, John Vandermate. And uh, his bride was walking down the aisle. She had made her wedding gown. And it was an outdoor wedding, a beautiful setting. And um, I watched John try to hold it together. My daughter, Nicole, I, I was in a difficult position because I was performing the ceremony and I also had to walk her down the aisle. So I'm trying to hold it together as I walk my daughter down the aisle to her new husband, Tony. I get through that part. I think I'm doing well. Cal is up on stage going, who gives this woman? I say, her mother and I. I kiss my daughter goodbye. I hand her over to Tony. And then Cal sits down and I take the stage and I've got to complete the ceremony. So I've got to hold it together, right? 
But in that moment, his Tony saw his bride walking down the aisle, my daughter Nicole. He started to get emotional. And as I sat to do the ceremony, I've got Tony on this side, I've got Nicole on this side. She looks beautiful in her dress, and Tony's lip is just quivering. And his cheeks are turning red, and his eyes are watering. And I'm thinking to myself, hold it together, dude. Like, like, like if you lose it, I wasn't expecting, if you lose it, I'm going to be struggling here. Like, get your stuff together. And um, it's like that. Seeing heaven for the first time is like watching your bride come down the aisle. It, it creates that response. It is a <gasps> moment because everything is new. If you just go down a couple more verses, look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now before Jesus dies, the night that he's betrayed in John 14, uh, Jesus is trying to comfort the hearts of troubled disciples. And he looks at his disciples and he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself that where I am, you can be always. So, so here's the question. How long ago did Jesus say that? Was that like 2,000 years ago? He went to prepare a place for his disciples, for us. How long did it take him to create the world? Six days? How long has he been working on heaven? Like 2,000 years? I think it's going to be awesome, don't you? And here's the truth. I think um, even when he created the earth, I don't think it took him all day, every day. I think he just spoke and it existed and then he kind of chilled the rest of the 24 hours. So I'm not saying that he's been working on this for 20, he can speak unimaginable awesomeness like this. But I think heaven's going to be pretty awesome. Everything's going to be new. Hey, who here could be willing to admit, would be honest enough to say that you like new stuff? Anybody here like new stuff? You're like if you, would you rather wear an old outfit or a new outfit would you rather hit an old golf ball or a new golf ball like like we like new things we like shiny things um this past november last november i ordered a new car and it was going to be delivered just a couple days before christmas so i got the call come down and pick up your car and as i was getting ready to go the dealership called me back and they said hey you need to know your car's damaged the the bumper's uh, been dented, the hood has been dented. Go ahead and pick it up, get it repaired, we'll pay for it. I'm like, why would I pick up a new car that's already crashed? Like, I want a new car. I don't want to pull out of the lot with a car with dents all over it. I'm going to get a new car. Why in the world would I do that? So they said, no, you fix it. So they did about a month later in July or in January. They're like, car's fixed, you can come get it. I'm like, it took you a month? Like, how beat up was that thing? And I'm like, I'm out. I just want to order a new car. They said, that could take a while. I said, I'd rather do it that way. So ordered a new car. So the car that I ordered originally at the beginning of November finally came, knew exactly how I wanted it, July 1st, eight-month wait. Okay? Oh, and I was so excited. And it smelled like a new car. And it was like, this is great. I got it on July 1st, um, and I didn't crash it until July 11th. So I had it for 10 days, and um, a deer ran out. I slammed the deer. In a weird twist of irony, it dented the front bumper and dented the hood. And um, 
Um, I know some of you are concerned. You're like, is the deer okay? No, no, it is not, all right? Um, bad moment. So the car is now in the repair shop. They think I'll get it back somewhere between six weeks and six months. Um, and I hope when I get it back, it's like new. See, that's the problem here on earth. Even when we get the new things, it doesn't stay new for very long, right? Or the thing that was new that we were so excited about, all of a sudden the newness of it wears out, it becomes ordinary, we take it for granted. In heaven, everything is new. There are no repair shops in heaven. There is no having to drink the last bit of milk out of the bottom of the gallon. It's always fresh. It's always new. It's how heaven is described. There's no expiration dates. In, in heaven, you will never put on a pair of jeans and find out that there's holes in the knees unless you bought your jeans that way, which makes absolutely no sense to me. Okay? Everything is new. But I promise you, the focus of new is not on stuff. In heaven, there are no broken relationships. There are no strained friendships. There's no waking up to regret prior choices. There's no wishing you could change people's perceptions of you. There is no having to deal with the problems from the day before. Heaven is described as always new. You will not get tired of heaven. Heaven will always be fresh. And though we struggle, it's like if you're going to be there for eternity, how in the world can it stay new? The promise that Scripture gives us is heaven is new. You will not be bored. You will not long for a vacation to break the routine after a while you will not take heaven for granted having everything will not lessen or discourage your drive for excellence your drive to be your best everything will be new for eternity and though we struggle to imagine that can we just take Jesus word on that he says, behold, all things are new. Let me give you a second kind of teaser for heaven that I see in the text, verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So, so in verse 4, he says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. I think what's communicated there is not only is it new, but when you get to heaven, there's going to be comfort. There's going to be comfort. You will be comforted. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it teaches that there's a twofold purpose for the return of Jesus Christ. Paul is speaking to a church in Thessalonica that is enduring extreme persecution because of their commitment to the gospel. People in their church are dying for their faith in the gospel. And Paul writes these words in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, speaking of the return. It says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, get this verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the angel, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Those two words there, grant relief, literally translated mean the removal of pain, the absence of anxiety, the end of distress. Revelation 7, verse 16 says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I remember an old baseball movie, Tom Hanks, saying, There's no crying in baseball. But 
There's no crying in heaven. There's no crying in heaven. If, if, if you're in heaven someday and you're walking down the street and you notice that somebody's crying, don't ask them what's wrong. That's a rookie mistake. They're crying tears of joy if there's any tears at all in heaven. In heaven, you're comforted. I don't know if you guys know this, but it's been scientifically proven. This is fascinating to me. It's been scientifically proven that during our lifetimes, each one of us will cry the exact same number of tears. Did you know that? Of course not, because I made it up. That was stupid, right? <laughs> like, how would they even know that? Listen, life has different trials. It has different sorrows. It has different heartaches. Can I read you a verse from Psalm 56 I find interesting? Psalm 56, 8 says this. Speaking of the Lord, the psalmist writes this, You have kept count of my tossings. You've kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Here's why I like that verse. I understand that it's poetic. I don't know when we get to heaven we're going to see a line of bottles with all of our tears. For some of you, maybe that's like a five-gallon bucket. I don't know. But here's what I know. When you're struggling, when you're heartbroken, when you're moved to tears, Psalm 56 tells us this, that God sees, that he knows, that he understands. This wasn't his original tent. The, the heartbreak and the sorrows of this world are a result of sin. And God looks down from heaven today and the psalmist says, hey, he sees when you can't sleep. He sees when you're restless. He keeps track of your tears. And a day is coming when it will be more than God just knowing our sorrows. He will be comforting our sorrows. In heaven, you'll be comforted. There will be no more heartache. There will be no more broken dreams. There will be no more difficult goodbyes. There will be no life-changing phone calls, no worrying about your kids, no regrets, no betrayals, no pain. If you stub your toe in heaven, it won't hurt. How awesome will that be? No pain. No shin splints, no artificial knees, no surgeries, no illnesses, no doctors. There's no dentists in heaven. We know that, right? Well, actually, one of my elders is a dentist. I have to be careful. There's dentists. They're just not practicing dentistry. Um, there's no preachers in heaven. Well, I hope there's preachers in heaven, but I promise you we're not preaching because you'll see Jesus face to face. We're going to be the guys standing in whatever heaven's equivalent of the unemployment line is. There's no sorrows, no pain, no diets. I can't prove that. I just believe that it's true. No aging, no decline, no anticipation of the end, no funeral homes, no sudden loss. God promises in Revelation 21 that he will wipe away every tear. We can trust him when he says that. In heaven, you'll be comforted. Here's the third thing, verse 6, Revelation 21. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Slide over just a chapter if you've got your Bibles there. Look at Revelation 22:17. The Spirit and the bride said, come. And let the one who hears say, come. 
And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. The first few verses of Revelation 22 say there is a stream of living water that, that flows from the throne of God through the center of the streets in the New Jerusalem. In heaven, there is a sense of completion, of satisfaction. And, and these verses in Revelation 21 and 22, they actually echo back to something that the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, we read this. The prophet, speaking on behalf of the Lord Almighty, says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, and buy, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then the question is asked in verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. The interesting thing is in Isaiah 55, the call to come to living waters isn't future tense. Isaiah's not talking about heaven. He's talking about what's available to us right now when we submit our lives to the Lord. In Revelation, future tense. Isaiah, present tense. All of this is available to us today as followers of Jesus Christ, but the problem is we're just too easily distracted in this world. Would you agree? And we miss it. And the joy that God would have for us, the peace that God would have for us, we get distracted. We pursue other things. We put our hopes in things that are temporary. We are just too easily forgetful and distracted by the things of this world. And when we get to heaven, there's going to be no distractions. Solomon in Ecclesiastes talks about the vanity of everything this life has to offer in comparison to what he says in, Reve in Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember your creator. We fool ourselves into believing that we can recreate heaven on earth. Do you have that picture of that river? Okay, so this is as close to heaven on earth as I can personally get. This is my favorite spot on the planet. It's in Alaska. It's on a river. It's actually where two rivers combine. It's called the confluence. And as these two rivers combine, fish are coming out of the ocean. I'm only about a mile off the ocean here. And uh, you just stand there and slay salmon. I'm going to be there in about a month. I'm pretty fired up about being there. Uh, this is kind of a special trip for me. I'm taking a, a, a childhood friend with me, um, Brett Lyle. I'm taking my brother with me. It's the first time Keith has been to Alaska. I'm really, really excited about that. But here's the truth. When we get to Alaska and we're standing in the confluence, I'm still going to be anxious about some things. I'm going to be like, is the weather going to hold? Are we going to be able to get out of here tomorrow on the plane? Or is bad weather going to come in? I hope Keith catches fish. I hope Brett catches fish. Last time I was at the confluence, I fished for 45 minutes. I was at my favorite place on the planet, and I wasn't catching anything, and everybody around me was catching everything. And I'm like, what is going on? And the guy looked at me, and he goes, have you checked to see if you had a hook? No, I didn't have one of those that had broken off maybe half an hour before. Like, like I'm going to get frustrated in my favorite place on earth if I'm not careful, because... We cannot recreate heaven on earth. We can't do it as hard as we try. In heaven, it is done. You are where you want to be 
without worry or consideration of what comes next, what could go wrong. There's a sense of completion. Stated another way, everything that you want will be there. Heaven will lack nothing that you desire. And here's a fourth descriptor, new comfort, completion, and home. How can I be sure that heaven's going to lack nothing that I want? Well, that becomes pretty clear because we will be home. Psalm 1611 says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Revelation 21 verse 3 declares this, and I heard a loud voice from heaven, from the throne saying, that, that loud voice, that phrase, that descriptor is used 20 times alone in the book of Revelation. And every time it's used, it says, pay attention to what's coming next. It's important. It's significant. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, be in awe, be amazed that the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Slide over to Revelation 22, verse 1. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, New Jerusalem. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its uh, 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. One tree, 12 fruits, different fruit each month. Lemon, peach, apple, whatever. You know how it's like Michigan? Just wait a day, it'll change the weather. Just wait a month, new fruit. Man, it's going to be awesome. And it says this. The the leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but uh, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's been glimpses, minor glimpses of the presence of the Lord that I've experienced here on earth where I've seen his spirit move, where I've seen somebody give their life to Christ. A couple of those moments have been actually in this room. Sometimes when you guys are all here enjoying like a Christmas concert or a big gathering, I'm here too, but I'm just a little goofy and creepy. Um, I like to sit in a different place. That's where I usually sit. There's a catwalk around this building. And sometimes I like to climb up the catwalk during a service and just look down at the people worshiping. This is from a Christmas concert a couple of years ago. And everybody was holding candles, and the room was full, and we were singing, O Holy Night. And, um, man, it's a glimpse of what it's like to be in the presence of the Lord. I'm actually looking forward to uh, this evening, worshiping with the church family on the waterfront. I think I'm going to get a glimpse there. I wouldn't miss it. When you get to heaven, God's in the neighborhood. You'll see his face. He's dwelling with man. He's among us. What's it going to be like to talk to Jesus? Is there going to be a line? 
It's okay, we got all eternity, right? There's some questions I'd like to ask. There's some things about his life that I'd like to understand. Like, like I don't know much about what it was like to be the savior of the world when you were in the high school years. Did you fall in love? What was it like to be in the wilderness for 40 days? What was it like knowing your entire life, your entire ministry, that you were headed to the cross as a sacrifice for our sins to bear the weight of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to? What was it like living in anticipation of that? See, I just got some questions. I'm going to enjoy talking to him about these things. And I've got some questions about my life, too. I'd like to have him explain, like, like, why did this happen? And, like, I was trying to put together puzzle pieces, but I couldn't figure them all out. And why was this here? And why was this here? And there will be no rush, and we will be face-to-face, and Jesus will be in the neighborhood, and God Almighty will dwell with his people, and here's what that means. We'll be home, right? So that's a glimpse of heaven from Revelation 21 and 22. I would be remiss if I ended the message there. Let me point something else out. The destination is awesome. Here's point two. The journey is difficult. The journey is difficult. So I showed you earlier that picture of the confluence, my favorite place in the world to get there next month. Here's how it goes. I drive from Grand Haven to Grand Rapids. I get on a plane. I fly in the plane from Grand Rapids to Minneapolis. I have a layover. I fly from Minneapolis to Anchorage. I get there late at night. I stay in the courtyard by Marriott in Anchorage. I plan this thing. Courtyard by Marriott overnight. I get up early in the morning. I fly some little cargo type of plane, hour and a half, and land in Dillingham, Alaska. From Dillingham, Alaska, I take a 45-minute car ride in a van down to a lake, and I take a 35-minute ride on the lake to the lodge, and when I get to the lodge, I jump in a float plane, and I fly an hour, and I land at the confluence. That's it. Pretty straightforward. The journey's difficult. The destination is worth it. Heaven is awesome, but don't miss this. The journey isn't easy. Three quick points, just descriptions from Scripture. When I talk about the journey being difficult, here's the first thing that I would say. The road is narrow. The road is narrow. Matthew 7, verse 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, hear this, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The issue in these verses is not so much wide versus narrow. It's easy versus hard. As Jesus entered Jerusalem the final week of his life, his disciples pulled him aside, asked him some questions about their hope, his return. They said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered in Matthew 24, 11, he said this, Before I return, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Hear this, this is important. 
And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, so in these verses, what is pulling people astray? What is causing people, not, not a few, many, most people, what is causing their love to grow cold as the return of Christ draws near? Two things are identified. False teachers. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And then a second thing you can see in the text, lawlessness. A, a throwing off of authority. Nobody tells me what I can do. I'm going to do whatever I want. Rules, no ultimate truth, people doing whatever they please. Why, as a church, are we committed every week to open God's Word and go through passage by passage and let Scripture be our guide? Because in the end days, false prophets are going to arise. They're going to preach a truth that is not biblically based, and many will be led astray. I touched on this in the first part when I was talking about Genesis. The other reason that we do, and we focus, why did we spend so much time? Why have we just pounded the nail through everything that we went through on COVID? We need to live lives of submission. We need to live lives of submission. We need to live lives of submission, even when we don't like it. Why are we constantly opening God's word, and why have we pounded the nail of submission? Because those are the two areas before the return of Christ that are going to get people in trouble and make their love grow cold. False prophets, lawlessness is what leads people astray in the last day. The road is narrow. Here's the second thing. The tide is against us. Describing the last days, Paul writes to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says this, understand this, like get this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Hear this last phrase, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If that's the criteria of what our world and our culture looks like in the last days, does that cause anyone in the room to pause? As you compare that to Scripture, description, to where we find ourselves, where we see our culture. Romans 12.2 says this. In, in Romans 12.1, Paul is appealing to us. He says, I appeal that you give your lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Make him Lord of your lives, holy and acceptable. This is a reasonable response to the gospel and everything Jesus did on our behalf. And then he says in, Rev in Romans 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And buried in that is don't be conformed to the world. The person who is following Jesus Christ in the gospel, he's swimming upstream. The tide is against us. It's not going to be comfortable. You're not going to be able to coast, man. It's a difficult journey. Here's some good news. In John 16, Jesus says this to his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will, not might, not could, not probably, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. 
I have overcome the world. So the journey is difficult because the road is narrow. The tide is against us. Here's the last one. The opposition is real. Again, back to Matthew 24, Jesus is describing what it will be like before his return to his disciples. And it says in Matthew 24, verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. couple things. If you're hated by all nations, how many nations is that? All. Every nation. This isn't isolated. This is a global issue. You will be hated by all nations. Why? For my name's sake. If you don't want to be hated by the world, if you don't want to be hated by the nations, it's really easy. Just don't raise Jesus' name to the top of the flagpole. You can avoid the persecution. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ who's bold in your testimony and with the gospel, the warning's there. You can't read 2 Timothy 3 and say, man, the description there looks like the end times and then not be prepared that this might be a time of difficulty for a follower of Jesus Christ. It's interesting in Matthew 24, 9, it says, then they. Like, who's the they? Luke 21, describing the same thing, gives us more detail. It says, but before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, again, for my name's sake. Then verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then verse 19, by your endurance you will gain your lives. Jesus, in describing what it's going to be like for the follower of Jesus Christ in the last days, is saying the journey is going to be difficult. Get ready for hardship. Get ready for betrayal. And then he says, by endurance, you will gain your lives. What does endurance mean? Well, endurance, by definition, means that you're enduring something. It's going to be difficult. But, but the base of that word is to remain. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Don't take your eyes off heaven. Remain faithful. And then this, just a final thing. The question, will you get there? Look at what the text says. I find this interesting. Revelation 21.7, back to our original text. It says this in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. That, that word conquer there. Even more than, hey, winning a battle or winning a confrontation, that word conquer there actually means completing the race, finishing the course, completing what you've started, finishing what you've been called to. And then verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, or in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay, that list makes real little sense to me. Like if you're a liar and you're a sorcerer and you're an idolater, like I understand why God would want to judge those people. It's the first word that throws me. But for the cowardly? And then I've got to ask this question. John, in the last two books or chapters of the book of Revelation, as he's giving us a brochure, a sneak peek at what heaven looks like, why put 7 and 8 in the text? Why draw a contrast between conquerors and cowardly? Why that warning here? 
because heaven is exclusive. Not everyone gets there. The exclusivity of heaven is not based off how much money is in your bank account. It's not based off your abilities or your accomplishments. It's not based off the color of your skin. It's based off one thing. What did you do with Jesus Christ? Did you bend the knee? Did you seek repentance? Did you make him Lord? That's the thing that makes it exclusive. Only those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are going to experience the unending joys of heaven. And you don't want to be, well, I thought I did. You don't want to be in that line. The warning here is for a reason, because heaven is exclusive. This isn't the only time John makes this point. Look at verse 27 of Revelation 21. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, speaking of the city, the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 22, 12, just a couple verses from the end of the book. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus writes, John is the scribe, seven letters to seven churches. And in those letters, you can read them in your spare time, to every church, faithful church, apostate church, lukewarm church, every church in every state, he says this, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. And then he gives a promise of blessing to each of the churches. But there is that, to the one who conquers. Are you a conqueror or are you a coward? The disciples, in the hardest moment of their lives, Jesus says, don't be troubled. Look to heaven. And by the way, i got to be really careful here. This is not a works-based salvation. I'm not saying those of you who endure will get to heaven. What I'm saying is those of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he will give you the ability to endure. You're not even going to get the credit for it. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Hear this, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Here's my fear. If we lose sight of Revelation 21 and 22, if we take our eyes off of heaven, and the only thing we do is focus on a world that has fallen, that before the return of Christ, it's already described, it's not going to get better, it's not going to get worse. Hey, here's a clue, church, we're not changing our culture. 
Our mission is not to transform culture. Our mission, the gospel, has always been a rescue mission. The ship of culture is sinking. We're rescuing people. That's our calling with the gospel. And here's my fear. If the only thing we do is focus on how bad culture is getting, all we're doing is looking around and we're never looking up. And the call to the followers of Jesus Christ are, keep your eyes on what is ultimately true. Heaven is real. Heaven is real. We live in unusual days, would you agree? It says this, Matthew 24, again answering his disciples, what will it look like before your coming? Matthew 24, 37, Jesus says this, for as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. He's saying, just like it was before Noah came, that's what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. Now, a few weeks ago when I taught the first part of this two-part series, we looked at Noah. It said that in the days of Noah, all men's hearts were only on evil continually. That's Genesis 5.5. Gives you an idea what it's going to look like before the return of Christ. Verse 38, for as in those days before the flood, there was eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Here's the point. Don't be unprepared. Don't get caught off guard. Keep looking for heaven in the midst of the trials and difficulties. Sometimes I think we're too focused on what's happening now. And we need to be a little bit more focused about what comes next. So, so, so how do we respond? How, how do we live today in light of the fact that we want to be and we plan to be and we're hoping to be and we're assured if we put our faith in Jesus Christ that we're going to spend our eternity in heaven? How do we respond now? It's interesting. We're not left clueless on that one. In 2 Timothy 3, he said, in the last days it's going to be times of difficulty. Men, lovers of self, lovers of money, everything that I read doing whatever they want. And then these are the words that Paul pens to Timothy next. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. And so he's pulling the big guns there, right? He's not just saying like, hey, I got this kind of idea that I think you might consider. He's like, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. And then he, he drops this, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearance and by his kingdom Preach the word. Stay faithful. Know God's word. Don't bail on the foundations of our faith. Don't punt on Genesis. Place your hope in the promises of Revelation. This is real. This is true. It is steadfast. Don't lose sight of it. Verse 3 of 2 Timothy 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Verse 5, As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Why would Paul say that to Timothy? Because our Savior said to his disciples, to the one who endures till the end will be saved. 
Listen, heaven is awesome. The journey is difficult. We've got to examine our hearts. Because standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes more against the current of our culture. Who are we? Who are we going to be? Will we be the many whose love grows cold? Will that be the description of us? Will we take the easy way out? Will we compromise? Will we focus on the problems of the immediate and lose complete sight of the glory that's to be revealed to us? I'm not trying to minimize the difficulties and sufferings that some of you are experiencing and the heartache that you're going through right now. I just promise you this. God keeps your tears in a jar. He knows. And as difficult as this moment might be for some of you, we have the promise from the book of Romans that what we're going through today are light and momentary afflictions that cannot be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Do we believe that, church? And let's live like we do. Let's live like we believe it. Let's live in light of what God has purchased for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the promise of heaven. Father, I long for the day that um, you dwell with us. That is our hope. That is our anticipation. Father, let that be the thing that we focus our minds on in days that are more difficult, in days that are sorrowful. And Father, we, we can speak from experience. You can speak from experience because of your gift of Jesus Christ. This life has its share of difficulties. But Father, your promises are true. Our hope is in you, and we long for the day when you come and say, it is done. And the rest of our days and the rest of eternity is spent in the glory of seeing you face to face. Father, our prayer is the same prayer that we find at the end of Revelation 22. Lord, come quickly. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.